Hey there, Aligned You listeners. This is Dr. M here and welcome to our Aligned and Thriving season and series of interviews. I am super pumped to be sharing a series of stories and interviews with some amazing humans, people, some who I've admired from a distance for a long period of time, others who I know personally and call dear, dear friends and feel very privileged to do so. This series is designed to actually dive deeper into what allows them to truly live an aligned you and aligned you life and to be thriving, whether that's in their work life, their home life, or their play life. And working out truly, is there common themes or is everyone different? And we really do all reach our full potential in our own unique way. I'm your host, Dr. M, and you're listening to Aligned You, a podcast designed to assist you to truly be aligned through your body, head, and heart, so you can reach your full potential in your own unique way. Hey there, Aligned You listeners, Dr. M here, and welcome to the final instalment of the first series of our Aligned and Thriving interview series. My guest today is an extra, extra special guest. It's actually my mum, aka Yoda. And I am super pleased to have had the opportunity to record this particular episode. Now, some of you might be wondering, if you're new to my journey and aligned you, is you might be wondering why my mum's nickname is Yoda. Well, there's plenty of reasons for it, actually. One is it's our love of Star Wars, partly, but mainly because mum is tiny. She's a a short, beautiful lady uh, who is also very wise and goddamn resilient, let me tell you. And I'm particularly grateful that we had the opportunity to record this particular episode now and that uh, I was able to to record it in time for it to drop tomorrow in, in sequence with the other interviews because, as some of you would know who've been following my journey for a little while now, you might have realized that mum's actually two years into or nearly two years into her journey with cancer. And at this point in time at when we were recording this episode is that she was having a good day today when we recorded it, which I was so pleased about because her clarity and and cognitive function has certainly been decreasing with the various treatments she's on. So I'm super blessed to have had her and have her in my life as an amazing role model. And even the way she's, she's navigating her journey through cancer has been an inspiration in itself. She has been and is one of my biggest inspirations in everything that I do and I hope you enjoy this interview. I I feel very grateful that I was able to record it and even more grateful that I get to share it with you. Enjoy today's interview. Hey there, Dr. M here and I am with a very special guest today. Today's special guest is Yoda, aka my mum and I'm very look- much looking forward to today's episode. Am I allowed to call you Yoda or do I have to call you mum today? Yoda sounds really good, Maria. Okay. <laughs> it's one of the few times, aligned you listeners, you will be hearing me get called by my full name because it is rather weird if mum all of a sudden actually called me uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Maria in the same way some people think it's weird that I call her Yoda. But anyway, there's a story to that uh, which I'll share in the, which you will have heard in the introduction today. But the premise of this interview series, Mum, is that I've interviewed a series of amazing souls who live their life in all areas, work life and play in in aligned manner. And when I was actually planning this interview series, which you may not have known this, but I'd always planned to actually interview you for this interview series because there was a moment at uh, my book launch actually last year, uh, back in March 2019, when there was an exercise that was done uh, and it was Maslow's uh, hierarchy and we went through all the different levels of Maslow's hierarchy and I don't know if you remember but you were the only person standing still, uh, standing up still when we got to self-actualization. 
Do you remember that? Yoda is currently nodding at the moment. She's not quite caught on that podcast is an audio platform, but versus a visual platform. But we'll catch we'll catch her up in just a moment. Um, and I've and there's you've had such an interesting life, and I wanted to be able to focus on some of those um, aspects today and ask you some questions about it. But um, that's the premise of today's. Uh, podcast. That sounds fine, Maria. Actually, I do remember standing there like a sore thumb. I can't remember why, but I do remember standing. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. Well, basically, you will be being taken through Maslow's hierarchy of the basic human needs to what then helps us thrive. And then the the top of the the hierarchy is self-actualization, which we'll probably talk about at another time, Alanji listeners. But as I said, is I wanted to actually capture some of Mum's details of life uh, on Aligned You for this particular interview series for many, many reasons. One, because she's been very much an inspiration to me over my lifetime, obviously, but as well as that is that in many ways, Mum, you are such a pioneer and I love there's aspects of the stories that I've heard you tell as I've been growing up that have been inspiring and sometimes challenging but mainly inspiring, uh, and I wanted to actually talk more about those today, as I mentioned. And so let's start off. I mean, you've been alive for 83 years, so we might not go through all 83 years. Years, not just weeks or days. Exactly. So, so we don't necessarily have time to go through all the details, but can you tell the listeners a little bit about where you were born? How did you end up in Australia? And uh, a little bit about your initial journey to Australia. I was born in Hanoi at that time. They now call it North Vietnam. My dad was a projectionist, one of the pioneering cinema projector setting up rows, if there's such a word. People wonder where I learn how to make up words. <laughs> <laughs> and he met my mother, actually was introduced to my mother through mutual friends. Um, she was originally from Haiphong. Um, and when they married, he moved to Hanoi because that was a base of where he was actually working. So that was way back in 1933. Um, this is where, as I said, met mum and married her. And I have three siblings. Fred, my older brother, was born in 1933. I was born in 1937. My sister was born in 1938. And my younger brother was born in 1940. You were born in, in Hanoi and that was at a time when there was lots of political change in that period of time when you were little, wasn't there? Definitely. It was a French colony to begin with. And in 1944, the Japanese had moved down through the then French Indochina and my family lived in this huge compound that had, I'm just trying to think, lots of bedrooms. It actually had a firing kiln because at one stage the owners made bricks to build the various 
homes, houses that were going up then under the French, um, under French rule. I remember at one stage when the Japanese had put my father in jail because he was a British subject. And one of the prison guards, he would be well and truly dead by now, so this talk would not affect him, um, very kindly allowed my mother and, and my siblings and I to stand in the, in the road and wave to Dad. So he appeared at a window, we were able to wave to him to reassure that he was okay and that we were okay because I understood that many of the prisoners then, political prisoners, I don't know, you call them political prisoners, but many of those prisoners had been tortured, filled with water and jumped on and nasty things like that. So we were very happy to see that he seemed to be okay health-wise. Um, I do remember that as a child, probably beginning from the age of three, I went to a French infant's primary school so that my first language was French. Um, and it wasn't until Dad was released from prison, the then British consul in Hanoi advised him to leave the country because with the Viet Cong coming south, he would probably again be under, under danger. So dad very wisely accepted the offer of being moved from Hanoi to Hong Kong by an Air Force Dakota. In those days it was a rattly thing. We don't realise these things now when we have these beautiful jets and so on that originally planes were very tinny, very rattly and not as comfortable we left Hanoi in 1945 and, as I said, under, at that stage it was under Japanese occupation. I don't remember why we were allowed to leave unless we just managed to move out before that happened. And the reason why we didn't come to Australia in the first place but went to Hong Kong was because my half-sister, Phil, had somewhere during the war years was lost somewhere in, in Vietnam, and Dad wanted to find her because he felt that um, Hong Kong was closer, was easier to find her from there than from Australia. But also at that point, wasn't it white-only policy and, and your parents couldn't immigrate anyway? Under those circumstances, we would have been allowed because it would, would have been because of the British consul. Uh, stepping in. Um, that white policy really only came in a bit later. Okay. And eventually my dad did find Phil, but by that stage she had married a, a French legionnaire and they had moved to, just trying to think which part of, um, which part of France they moved to. Anyway, they moved to some part in France, probably 
southern Paris. And that was where eventually my brother Fred here in Sydney, through the Red Cross, found that she had moved there with her husband and by then four children, four sons. Um, Fred was able to bring Willem and the four boys out here to Australia, again under some scheme, but he obviously guaranteed that he would look after them here, that he would not be a burden on the government. And I do remember from Hong Kong where I had gone to infants and, well, primary school by that time, and then the first year of high school, from then we were actually allowed to come out to Australia to study. So even though the white Australia policy was in place, we were allowed to come out for study purposes. And in the end, we were allowed to stay on because we had a useful profession. I was a high school teacher and I was able to get a position teaching, which meant that, again, I was not a burden on the government. Lucky you weren't a burden. I don't think you've ever been a burden on our government, Mum. I think you've paid your dues. But one of the – before we get stuck into, I suppose, your university and your 20s, um, I'd love to know more about what was the experience like because, I mean, I suppose I've heard you tell the story of what day you arrived um, off the boat, a a paid boat, um, a big bloody vessel that you arrived. Was it Boxing Day or was it Christmas Day? It was actually Christmas Day. And for those of you who do not remember, everything was closed down. The only place that was open with any kind of a meal was the canteen at Central Railway Station, which was about to close at 3 o'clock that afternoon and we just managed to get some meat pies, and maybe a drink. I forget what the drink was, but certainly I do remember the meat pies. So that was a good introduction to the cuisine of that time. (laughs) And, Mum, what was it like? So growing up in Asia, whether it was in Vietnam and in Hong Kong, where you had helpers, your, your parents had helpers. I have a feeling from my recollection of stories you had more helpers in Vietnam than you had in Hong Kong. But what was it like going from having nannies, cooks, cleaners to then ending up in a very cold boarding school up in Katoomba, effectively with, with your siblings but parents a long, long way away? And this is pre, pre-ease of communication of internet and, I don't know, was it easy? could you actually make phone calls? I'm just trying to remember. I think letters was the only way we could communicate. And I do remember my boarding school days because that was where my siblings and I went. We went to Katoomba, uh, probably one of God's coldest countries for anyone who came from warm countries. And, of course, this this is part of my personal story. Every winter brought chillblains to toes and fingers. Believe me, that's not very pleasant. And also that was, in a way, it was a really blessed time as far as my spiritual development was concerned. We were 
under the care of the Sisters of Charity, who are centred in Sydney at Potts Point. But then we, we had wonderful teachers. We had a teacher who came in at 6 o'clock every morning to teach us the piano. And I do remember Sister Stanislaus who gave us elocution and singing lessons, which also took place at six-ish in the morning. So I'm still an early riser. I still wake up to be ready to leap out of bed by six o'clock, this, which happened this morning, by the way, because I knew Maria was coming and I needed to do all the medication and breakfast and things that would keep me going during this interview. <laughs> so that I wouldn't fade away, and it was, a, it was really a wonderful time to come across women who believed spiritually and were able to pass that on. And there was a really very, very kind nun in particular, Sister Sarah, that I, was all, I would always remember, um, especially for her kindness to my sister, who probably had a much stronger will than I had. I have a feeling you have a strong will. She just might have had a more obstinate will. <laughs> Maybe that could be the word, but I'm being kind. I'm being kind. <laughs> being kind. No, no. Well, the thing is that breakfast on Sundays was special. We would have saveloys. What are saveloys? Saveloys are the red kind of um, saveloys. I suppose you would call them, they're not sausages, they are sausages in a, they're sausages in a red skin. Oh, like a Frankfurt. That one, Frankfurt, yes. So, and that was one of the favourites, you know, we loved having that for breakfast. And, but on this particular day, the special was tripe done in this parsley white sauce. Well, you ate it if you were hungry enough, but my sister was not hungry enough. And being of a very strong will, strong will, very strong will, she refused to eat it. So much so that the nun in charge of the breakfast room had her standing out in the refectory, which ran alongside of the dining room, dark, not lit up at all, and she had to stand there until she ate it. How long did she stand there for? It was evening by the time Sister Sarah Carney went and kind of took it away. <laughs> so, so Annie Rosie won? Yes, <laughs> she won that round. Um, yes, I mean... Usually she was able to pass these things on quietly to other people who loved it, uh, but this particular day she was seen putting it into her into the pocket of her pinafore, <laughs> and that was where she had to eventually have it removed before she was allowed to go up to bed. That's gold. I love those stories. I'm sure there's lots of other stories. So you were 13 when you came out to Australia on that, on Christmas Day and had your cold meat pie as your first cuisine. And, and one of the things that I, I feel very blessed about, Mum, is how you always frame things in the sense of um, you came from a, a 
to a country where you knew nobody except your siblings. You've come from a war, had come from a very warm country with a very, um, uh, I suppose you would call a privileged life overseas to then all of a sudden being in a boarding house that's cold with chillblains and yet your framing of it, it's, it was one of the most blessed times that you'd had. Is that the starting point of your meditation practice and prayer practice? Because one of the things that we've spoken about and that is a concurrent theme with everybody that I've spoken to in my interview series of people that I consider to be very successful is that they have, they might not call it a prayer practice or they probably, they call it often a meditation practice. But when did your spiritual uh, prayer practice actually start? Was it in high school or was it later on? It was actually uh, before I came to Sydney. Uh, before I came to Australia, I was very fortunate. We had this wonderful lady called Elizabeth Reed, who was part of a movement, the Grail movement from North Sydney. And she had come to Hong Kong to develop a newspaper and to involve young Christians, young Catholics, in becoming journalists, as it were. And I had also been privileged to join the Legion of Mary, which did social work and still does social work to this day and age. And from from the group that she had formed at the South China Morning Post, my sister and I went to a place... I think it was now called Repulse Bay, but there was an orphanage. And to get there, we needed to get to walk down from where we lived in Kennedy Road in Hong Kong. We had to walk down the steps to Wan Chai. And from there, we got a tram towards the orphanage. And I think my first recollection of... um, of doing this social work was when I fed, he would have been about six months, maybe six to nine months old, this little orphan boy, and I was feeding him the only food he would have had for the whole day, and that was a bowl of gruel, which you may not realise was just a bowl of rice porridge and that was his meal for the day. I'll always remember that. I remember in this little blue knitted outfit of some sort, which I would imagine would have been provided by the nuns who looked after that orphanage. So I would say that my involvement in prayer groups and in meditation would have come from that time, would have come from Elizabeth Reed. That's really cool. So, you know, as a, what, a 10 or 11-year-old? I was, this is 1949, so that was 12, I was a 12-year-old at that time. And interestingly enough, my sister of the firm mind, um, eventually became Auntie May on this paper and that developed her skills in writing stories and of um, following them up. That's really cool. 
Um, I want to bring you to when you finished high school. Uh, what made you te- choose teaching? Or actually, what made you choose a science degree? Because you did science first, didn't you? Uh, what were the choices back then? So what we're talking about the 60s, was it 1960 yet? Or was it 1959, late 50s, early 60s? It would have been the mid-50s. It would have been the mid 50s. This would have been 1955. And the choices from school, because in those days were leaving certificates, so that only a year younger, a year younger than it is now. Um, the choices then were to go into nursing or into teaching. It wasn't actually a subject that you went in for. It was a, a profession. And I chose teaching. And because of my leaving certificate results, they felt that I was suited for a science degree. Um, And so this is what I did. I went to Sydney University and did a science degree majoring in biology and maths. With that, though, a question from back then is because you say it very naturally, like I was always going to train as something. Was that the natural thing for women back then or was that in terms of how many how many women or girls at the, that point that you went to high school with, did everybody then go on to university or did most people actually go on to do other things? Well, the choices, as, as I said, were nursing, teaching and working in working as working in shops as saleswomen uh, there's a very interesting movie that came out recently that was based in was based in the 1950s called the black ladies you may remember that maria and uh, and that was one of the choices that you had you became a sales lady or a nurse or a teacher. That was what was available for women. Mm. Other than, or I should not say other than, but marriage was a fourth vocation that you had. Interesting that you call it a vocation because there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot of women now that fight for that vocation and, and the right to have that being recognised as such. So when you got to uni, um, at that point, were you uh, paying your own way, or at what point did Pepe's Um, business go bad and you needed to actually start working your three jobs? At the beginning, Dad was able to pay our fees. It wasn't just my fees, but it was also Rosie's and Fred and Frankie's, at that stage, still school fees. I was able to, I was very fortunate in a way, I was able to work for a gentleman who had um, a wood manufacturing business at Glee Point. And also I was able to get a job at the University of New South Wales with the then, I suppose you call these days, she would have been the vocation director then. And she needed a, a shorthand typist which I had to, which I had trained to do in one of my summer holidays, and at that stage, Dad had still paid for that. But after that, 
I was paying my own way, paying my own fees, which also included living at a hostel called St. Michael's Hostel, which is now a, well, it's now become a huge building that was built on a two-story home that the nuns lived in and provided boarding facilities for women like myself who attended either Teachers College or the University of Sydney. And was it that hostel that was the controversial one that you had that moment where you were asked to leave? Uh, yes, yes, it was one. Uh, she wasn't expecting me to ask her that, folks. <laughs> well, what happened then was I used to go back to Hong Kong. I went back to Hong Kong twice for the summer holidays for Christmas and some of the other girls who lived in that hostel, do I need to talk about this particular thing? Oh, I'd actually, I think it's really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is because, um, as I said, is that I always love the fact that, and I would like to touch on it at some point, I think it's particularly relevant in our current in our current circumstances is that um, we've had this conversation before where I've asked you if you ever feel like you experienced racism and you said no. And but this was potentially one of those moments where that was what perhaps guided what had happened to you. So I'd love you to share that story. And also, is it's it's for something, it's for something that we would think nothing of using now in 2020. We would think nothing of using. So if you could share that story, that would be fabulous. Yes. So when I returned from this particular summer holiday, I was asked very politely to leave and find other accommodation because someone had hidden tampons in, my, in the trunk that was under my bed. So obviously the nuns had gone through and found these tampons, thought that I was a person using them, and therefore I was asked to leave. Why was that so controversial back then? Because as I said is now is that I can remember when I was a teenager and I desperately wanted to be able to go swimming in, in summer um, when I had my periods and when you would for so long wouldn't let me use tampons for that, for perhaps, I don't know whether it was for personally, just purely for health reasons or whether it was a, a, a flow on effect from that. But why was that so controversial back in what the, the late 50s? Because contraception was not approved of. But a tampon's not contraception. Well, it prevented, I think, not sure now, but the reason was that we weren't supposed to use things like that, right. not supposed to use tampons. And, uh, <clears throat> and whilst I certainly didn't, as I said, the girls who must have put it in my trunk must have needed to hide it somewhere and it was convenient. So as a result, I was kind of expelled from that hostel. Um, and I must admit that the nuns had been very kind to me. Um, we had very substantial nourishment meals. Um, we had fair freedom in moving out and sort of socialising out of the convent, out of the, you know, out of the hostel. I did I did end up with some very nice uni friends and my brother Fred had had met 
Frank D'Souza, a doctor who shared accommodation with him at St. John's College in Missenden Road, and he and Francis, his wife, had moved into a semi-terrace um, which had which belonged to doctors who had originally lived in one part and rented the other part to students to students so that they could um, be close to uni but also have safety in that hostel. And this is where I met Frank and Francis D'Souza, who became very dear friends of mine. And in fact, both of them became godparents of my children. Well, of me anyway. Yes, and I, but I think Frank... Yes, I'm just trying to think, had Frank been a... Had Frank sponsored... I do forget that bit, but yes. Yes. Uh, Uncle, Uncle Frankie and Auntie Franny were, were definitely my godparents. Um, and, and again, it's, it's one of those things, and you always said it to me at uni, and it's definitely held true, is the friends that you make at uni are lifetime friends. And I'm very blessed for some of the, the beautiful friends that I certainly made through, through my time at university that 20 years on are, are still dear, dear friends. So, Mum, after you finished uni and you put yourself through uni in the end working multiple jobs and um, at that point then you you became a teacher. Um, so how old were you when you graduated and you started teaching? That's a good question. I'll give, I'll, I'll give the old girl a moment to actually remember. Mum's, mum's part of why I'm, I'm feeling very, uh, very grateful that we're getting this opportunity to record this now is, is because you are still remembering things, which is fabulous. So we want to make sure we're recording them now. So have you remembered how old you were now that I've given you thinking music time? How old I was then? I know how old you are now. I started my course in 1955. So how old does that make me? So you would have looked very young in your early 20s when you actually first started teaching. Oh, look, when I was on a bus, they used to offer me a child's concession. <laughs> uh, really? Yes, because I did. I did. I looked. Now, I believe I still look a few years younger than I actually am. That's, that's a true story. Yes. That's definitely a true story. So you started teaching science. What was the first school? Was that Fort Street? I did my prac at Sydney Girls High and then at Fort Street. And I was very fortunate. I'm glad I remember her name now. Bess Murphy was a science mistress there. She actually asked for me because they were allowed to do that in those days. She asked for me to join the staff when I finally graduated. Um, so I was at Fort Street Girls High. In 19, must have been 1959. How long did you stay there for? A couple of years? Because then where did you? you... Uh, I, I was very sad about that because I loved prac teaching there and I loved prac teaching. I did love prac teaching at Fort Street Girls and I was there for a year and 
I expected to remain there, except that in those days a married woman had um, had rights over unmarried women, and so a married lady wanted the job there, which meant that I was moved, and I don't know how Mrs. Cleary, who was a science mistress at. Auburn Girls High School. I don't remember how she managed it. But anyway, she she asked for me and that's where I went and that's where I spent the next 10 years of my teaching. Um, first, of all, as a, first of all, as a biology teacher. They didn't need maths teachers there. And eventually I became science mistress there. And you were, you were quite young to become science mistress there, weren't you? Well, yes, the reason, well, I was probably about four or five years ahead of my natural progression because, Mrs., because as I said, Mrs. Cleary had put in for me and she supported my application to become active, acting, when she herself became deputy principal. And so this was a natural progression in those days. And from there, because Frank and I then married, and I asked for a transfer. I was given, I was sent to Heathcote High School. We're, we've leapt forward a little bit. I want to come back to a little minute because I think when you uh, went to Auburn, was that where you you met the, the what's the right word, the formidable Mavis Best? Yes, yes. Mavis was the principal there at that time and <clears throat> everything was done the way she wanted it done, even to the extent that when girls had to go out on excursions for any reason, the length of their skirts actually had to be measured so that they touched the ground. They just touched the ground before they left the premises and I was one of the people given those jobs to make sure that it touched the ground. So to give you a little bit of context to line you listeners, Mavis Best actually, I knew her my entire childhood before she moved on to her pink cloud as Auntie Gotti because she was actually my brother's godmother. And I'm sure mum will share the story in a moment as I bring her back to how she actually met my dad, my brother and my dad, uh, who mum just referred to as Frank, is that the story goes that Auntie Gotti was such a formidable woman that the day that mum got married to dad is she wouldn't even give you the day off, would she? She gave me the afternoon off. I had to turn up for the morning, but then I was able to have the afternoon off. Um, just trying to think. That would have been, of course, a Friday. I was actually married on the Saturday. So I was given Friday afternoon off so that I would, um, you know, get my hair done and organise my clothing for the next day. Um, yes, and just coming back to the time before that, I must admit that I always remember the month of November because the U-shaped garden out the, the U-shaped garden that you could see from every lab, every science lab, biology lab, etc., was 
visible and this absolutely beautiful magnolia tree, mm. magnolia tree, the one that was white with a bit of paint, a bit of paint, pink. In the Sorry, I, I have to put my teeth back in all the time too when I'm recording, Mum. <laughs> Apparently it's genetic, I've just realised. <laughs> so with within that, and one of the things that I feel very blessed about in my lifetime is that not only have you been a very strong female role model, but I've, you've surrounded me with formidable, strong female role models that uh, I never questioned what I could or couldn't do in life because it was just expected I could do whatever I put my mind to, whether that was you or dad telling me that. And uh, and having those, having yourself and, and other female role models around me, there's something I feel very blessed about. One of the things with my memory of, of, of for example, Arnie Gotti is that uh, she wasn't always the easiest person to get on with. And yet you always have an amazing ability to soften even the, the hardest of hardest of characters. Um, was What would you put that down to? The secret, I think, is to always respect the other person's viewpoint and when you cannot agree with it, you can agree to disagree. And I think that's what the that's how things work between Mavis and me. <laughs> Luckily, she took a shine to Dad, your dad, to Frank. She took a real shine to him. So things were a little bit more easygoing after that. Oh, really? It was Dad that softened it. That I would not have picked that. There you go. See, this is why this is, yet again on an Aligned You interview series, I'm hearing stories that I that I haven't heard before. So coming back to Dad um, for a second, Mum, is that uh, and Aligned You listeners. So Dad, uh, it was Dad's 20th anniversary this year of moving up to his pink cloud, and uh, one of the things that's that we found, which is really cool, well, I think it's really cool and I will be getting it framed, is the original contract that you and Dad, that you and Dad had. So how did you and Dad meet? Because you met a little bit later on, not late, late, these days it would bloody be early, but back in those days you met fairly late and you got married in those terms fairly late, which I actually consider to be quite pioneering, one of the many pioneering things that you did. Um, but pre-actually getting to dad, you actually managed to buy your own house and getting your own mortgage as a single, very Asian-looking woman as a 28-year-old. Have I got that right? I was fortunate in that the Teachers' Federation in those days was very strong and they had very strong people like, just trying to think, it was Alma, the, the headmistress at Fort Street Girls High, who had invited me to attend one of the Federation meetings. Um, and I was able to, to obtain a loan to buy 104 living. Back then to when you actually met Dad. So I love this story because it, it speaks to our family's business that then managed to, you know, to Dad and Mum working very hard to put, both Andrew and I through private schools and so that we could become professionals. Um, tell, tell the listeners how you and Dad met because unless there's a different version that you now want to tell me, I love the original version that I was, I've always been told. How can I not give you the original Because <laughs> you're making up some new versions these days. No, no, no. <laughs> Frank and I met over a Singer sewing machine. Because that particular, that particular week... I had laryngitis and the last time I'd had laryngitis, I actually struggled to go to school and 
found it very, very difficult. So this time I was much wiser and took the time off. So not wanting to just sit there idly, I went to sing a sewing machine at Marrickville, which is where I met your father. And um, I had an old sewing machine that had belonged to my mother. So I used that as a deposit. Frank brought the new machine to where I lived, which was then at 298 Livingston Road. And uh, just trying to think, we exchanged a contract. And of course, he left the machine, he went away, and he came back later because obviously this was the done thing in those days. You can't mix business with pleasure. Oh, really? Yes, yes. No, he came back and invited me out for dinner, which I accepted very happily. There you go. See, I didn't know that part. Yes, I did you? No, no. That's 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 the first time you've ever shared that component. But then I suppose I've not asked you while holding a microphone to your face before either. So that that might have something to do with it. Um, what was it like? And you might have no recollection of it because sometimes you you really do a lot of things. Uh, I think just water off a duck's back is probably how you would describe it. Uh, so, aligned you listeners, my, my father was a Hungarian man, uh, a white Hungarian man. What was it like in the 60s dating when you still, and as you do now, still look quite Asian, what was it like being a mixed couple back then? It wasn't accepted. I do remember going to the movies. Just trying to think. It was a wonderful movie. Might have been um, Sound of Music at the Majestic at Central. And I do remember our sort of being looked at differently, strangely, as... A couple of mixed, obviously mixed um, color, mixed race. That didn't deter. That didn't deter your dad, by the way. Clearly, <laughs> yes, no, because uh, we had a few more dates before that, and eventually, eventually got engaged and got married. Was it ever something that bothered you? Not really, because I. As you've realised, I've always been my own person and having strange looks just didn't bother me. I mean, it was a people's problem, it's not mine. It wasn't my problem. It wasn't your dad's problem. It was their problem. I love that. That's very cool. Um, why on earth? I actually know why. Well, actually, I have a feeling why, so I won't assume. Um and aligned you listeners is if you if you have an opportunity to read uh, my book that was released last year or perhaps revisit some of the uh, archives of Be the Queen of Your Stress, I, I talk about the aspects of, of growing up in the Sutherland Shire, which back in the in the late seventies um, was the most Anglo-Saxon part of Australia. In many ways, it still is, although it's shifting a little bit. And back then, is that uh, moving. You, you and Dad choosing to move into the most white part of Australia with <laughs> mixed race children. Uh, and, and then was your belief at that point, was it that we, 
that a simulation was just something that should happen because you and dad made very conscious choices not to teach either Andrew or I your first languages. We were, we were brought up to be good Aussie kids, which I think we both are. Um, but what made you and dad think about moving to the Shire or was it just, it just didn't even come up into your radar that it was ever going to perhaps create some waves? We were driving around looking for somewhere to settle. And to begin with, because Frank was from the eastern suburbs, we looked in the eastern suburbs. And fortunately, we saw a place that we thought we might like but decided not to. Um, And then we drove out this way and... We looked at Oyster Bay, we looked at Como, all of these places were near water, which is what Frank wanted. At that stage I didn't mind. but And then we drove to a new suburb that was just being opened up. Originally it had been a fruit orchard. And because of that it wasn't developed at all. New streets had been put in. There were still dirt roads at that time. And we drove to Trade Winds Place, part of the tour around, and this partly built Lendley's home was there. And Frank decided he'd climb up to the top floor and he fell in love with the view because it looked down Oyster Bay, the oysters were still in their trolleys, as it were, and he fell in love with it, so we put a deposit on it that day, and that's where we eventually moved to. Oh, I know, because that's where I, the house that the, the house that I grew up in, uh, and it was it was a very interesting time, which, as I said, I, I speak about in in other in other episodes. What was it like, uh, and I suppose it comes back to that question of, of your, how your, actually I haven't asked the question yet, I'll form the thought fully in my head before I, I ask it, is that you mentioned earlier that your spirituality and your spiritual life started at a very early age and one of the things that I've always admired about your 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 faith, Mum, is that it is that, it's a faith and it's a spirituality, it's not only rote learning you just don't you're not just a sit down stand up Catholic that goes once a year Um, it is actually a spiritual journey because one of the things that we often talk about uh, whether it's on Aligned You and other platforms that I'm a part of is that um, religion isn't spirituality they're actually two different things and so that's just made mum roll her eyes at me (laughs) but you practice your religion with a level of spirituality that not all people do How to answer that one, Maria, because my humanity and my spirituality are one and the same. They're not separate entities at all. So I don't know what you would call that. Um, I was introduced probably through the Legion of Mary about five years ago to a different type of spirituality where you believe and live in the divine will of God. So whatever it is that God wills for you 
or for those around you is what you practice and what you believe in. Mm. So I guess this is, as I said, it's not separate. They're not two separate things. My spirituality is me. Which is, that's exactly what I was saying. So we actually agree on that one. There's many things that probably over the years we haven't agreed on, but that's certainly one of them. So um, one of the things that I I wanted to talk a little bit about because uh, it is, again, it's it comes down to how you've stayed aligned and in your spirit for your lifetime, and it's been and it's been a very str- a very important part of your lifetime, is that. Uh, actually, we might talk about this this component first. So, um, pre-COVID, because we're actually for those of you listening back to this in in the future, is that we are just coming out of isolation of COVID. Uh, and pre-COVID, is you had a daily practice of going to mass pretty much every day, unless there was some sort of emergency that meant you could not go, or on the times you've driven yourself to emergency. Story for another time, aligned you listeners, um, is that you were going to Mass every day and you were doing that from the time, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection is it was because you made a deal with Big Guy that you'd go every day when Andrew was doing his fellowships for obstetrics and I was completing my master's degree in chiropractic, is that that was when you started your daily practice of going to Mass. What you told me back then was that you were, it was part of your um, commitment to help us actually get through that period of time and then you kept it going have I remembered that correctly or did I just make something no 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 I think no I don't think uh, that's the real reason I think (laughs) it's just the reason you told me (laughs) just the reason you told me it was a good story we 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 never let the truth spoil a good story in our family no what I remember was when your dad was first diagnosed with different um, health issues I was able to stay home and kind of look after him and look after the home and take your kids to wherever you had to go, whether it was sport or school or whatever it was. Um, And so that filled my day. But once your dad passed, I can't believe it's 20 years ago now, Um, once he had passed... And at that stage, both you and Andrew had started your various courses. I like my story better. I think my story of why you started going to Mass every day is the best one, which was that well, what you told me at the time was part, part of your deal that you made with the big guy to help us both get through the various trials and tribulations we were going through at the time. Part of why I like that story, whether it's true or not, Mum, is because it's, it's something I suppose that I have implemented even recently where um, an aligned you listeners would have heard me talking about my sunrise practice and my, me- my meditation practice that particularly as uh, over summer where I, I did it for, I do it daily, my meditation practice, but particularly sunrise is I, I did it every day to actually help create momentum and create alignment within myself because I like what I love what you said which is your humanity and your spirituality is one they're not separate entities is that it's amazing when we actually do align that what else can happen around us and as you said is what's meant for us is is actually can come to fruition then which is which is something very special um I'm going to ask you a question 
because it's something that I always feel very blessed for and it's a question that I get asked regularly and it's it was probably not the easiest conversation you and I ever had when I was 28 but when I actually but I have a feeling you knew that I was gay from much much earlier on in life is that mum just shrugged her shoulders is that um, when we actually had the conversation when I was 28 and I actually came out, how challenging was that for you at that point in time, being a, a daily going Catholic woman? Uh, and and one of the things that I always, well, people ask me, how how was that for me? And, I, and other than one of your funny lines, which was, can't you just be single, uh, which you got over very quickly when I said, no, mum, I can't, um, is that one of the things that I feel very blessed about is that there was never a sense that I wasn't going to be accepted for who I am. Um, How challenging was that for you at the time? Did it test any of your beliefs or was it never in question that it was, well, one, you probably already knew, but um, two, is, is how challenging was that for you at the time? Maria, as you realise, I was able to accept everything because, as I said, it wasn't my place to judge. And because I, I do live in the divine will, I entrust you and Andrew and my whole family to him as well. So whatever is, it's not for me to judge. I like that answer. Um, and I feel very blessed for that because I know it's not everybody's journey when they, they actually are speaking their truth to to their parents and to their to their family members. Um, <laughs> heard in the background, folks, is Atlas Ray of Sunshine is clippy clopping in the background of Mum's apartment as we're as we're recording. Um, and came in for a came in for a big pat as as we were actually recording. Before we finish off for today's uh, interview and we might do another one further down the track um for those of you who don't know is mum's been in a journey with cancer since 2018 and uh and it's it's coming to a point now where we're moving into palliative care for mum and it's why it's it's uh it's I think divine timing that we're recording today well whilst you're in a, in good spirits and feeling quite well today how challenging has that been to staying in your alignment in spirit since the original diagnosis uh, and and how hard, how hard has that been or what areas of, of would you like to share about that? Because one of the things that you really do do, Mum, is you rock a selfie. And those those people that follow my journey on socials, whether that's on my, my personal page, Dr Maria Z, or on Aligned You, is you'd see photos of Mum. And one of the most common things that people who are asking after your well-being is they always say, gee, she looks well and she always looks happy. Um, how have you stayed in good spirits through this period of time, which would have broken a lot of people? You're a resilient, 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 resilient human who I think sometimes is a bit stoic about things. But how, how have you, she's now pulling faces, um, is how have you stayed in spirit and in good, in, in your spirit and in good spirits through this period of time? As I said before, I do believe that I live in the divine will and whatever his will is, I'm okay with. And that really is the bottom line, top line and the bottom line. I am in his hands. Obviously, I'm still around because there's still some work that I need to do. Um, Whether it's as an example or whether I'm actually physically able to help, I don't know. But I believe 
And that is it, I believe. I love that, Mum. Um, if there was a couple of things that you would share with, the, that you wanted to share with the Aligned You listeners in terms of the keys to having stayed in good spirits and in alignment throughout your 83 years young, is there is there something... I mean, obviously there's, there's potentially this is a whole nother podcast to go into, but would there be a final thought of what your key wisdoms in self-actualization are? Like what, what has been, what has been the key themes for you throughout your 83 years that have assisted you in doing that? I guess the main theme that I can share is this, you call it alignment. Um, It's the alignment in the divine will. And as I said, from a very young age, I've had this very strong devotion and belief in Our Lady as the mother of Jesus. And therefore, she is also on the journey with me. I guess she's a very powerful woman to be friends with or for her to be friends with me. And between her and Jesus, I believe that this this is my journey. So would you would you say would you say that part of what your what I'm hearing is that obviously your spirituality and your connection with with God, with Jesus, with with Mary has been crucial, but also then your connection in the community. You've been a giver your entire life in the community and you've done a lot of community work. Um, Has that human connection obviously been important? It has to be because it's a a three-way connection between between the divine will, what God wills for me, with the help that I know Mother Mary gives me and with my own beliefs. I think these three are just fully interconnected. And I think that's a beautiful point to end today's interview, Mum. As I said, is that we might we might get you back on again. Uh, but thank you for, for sharing today. And that's it for today's episode, Aligned You listeners. Remember to hit the five-star ratings and share today's episode with your friends. And be sure to join our collective on Facebook and Instagram at Aligned You. Look forward to catching you next time. The information shared on Aligned You podcast is of general nature and for information purposes only. It is not specific medical or personal advice. You should seek assistance from your healthcare practitioner for your individual circumstances. Any information provided doesn't imply endorsement or third-party devices or products and cannot provide you with health and medical advice.